I thought I was reading Dr. Seuss at this point, you know, in a car or, you know, eating tar, you know, in a tree with a bee. What, not what in a it, house, not with a mouse, not in a <laughs> boat, not with a goat, not with a Donatist, not with a Montanist. <laughs> Welcome to yet another Titanic episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swain, along with my colleague Ken Hensley, and we are with the Coming Home Network. If you don't know much about our apostolate, uh, we are people from every background you can possibly think of who made our way into the Catholic Church. Me, more of a Wesleyan Arminian. Ken, more of a Reformed type. He was a Baptist pastor. We won't hold it against him too much. Uh, and we just take a look at some of the issues that we explored on our way into the Church. We've been spending a lot of time on Sola Scriptura. Ken, you ready to talk more about the history of Sola Scriptura oh, in the yes, church? Yes, yes, yes. That's what we're on today. And so, I got to tell you, when I was a Baptist pastor, I never dreamed that I'd be making Titanic episodes in the future. Well, you I come mean, up with? look out for that iceberg, Ken. That's okay. all I can say. Um, but if we want to—well, let's go back to last week, and we were talking more about that first generation— of Christians, but we have this group of people mm-hmm. called the Church Fathers, and we mm-hmm. ought to know what their thoughts were on an issue like sola scriptura. That's right. The question for today, to put it in the simplest of terms, is: Is sola scriptura historical? We were looking at scripture before, and now we're looking at history. And what I mean by that is, when we look into the writings of the early Church Fathers, and I'm talking about those bishops those theologians, those apologists living in the centuries immediately following the apostles, what do we find? What do we see? In other words, how did St. Irenaeus, for instance, here, here you have the first great biblical theologian of Christian history. How did he understand the interworking of scripture and tradition as authorities within the church? How did he imagine that disputes when they arose would be settled within the church and, and should be settled? What was his view on these things? Did Irenaeus, as one example, did he teach that it's the Bible, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else, that is all that is necessary for faith and practice? I mean, in his opinion, it would matter, because if you trace his pedigree, you can get about two moves between him and the Apostle John. So that's right. uh, He's a guy whose opinion should matter on this. That's right. He was very, very close. I'm not remembering, was St. Ignatius himself a disciple of John? Or is it yeah, Ignatius steps? and Poly, I think through Polycarp was Irenaeus's connection. So yes, but they both yeah. they, they all studied with a connection to St. John, the Beloved, who laid his head on Jesus' breast at the Last mm-hmm. Supper. So these are witnesses who would have been paying very close attention to Jesus' best yeah. friend's teachings. Yeah, and I just realized Irenaeus couldn't have been a disciple because it's around 180 AD, 190 sure. that he's writing. But anyway, okay— Back to my story, because we're telling these things, you know, we're doing apologetics, we're doing evangelism here, but we're doing it in terms of our stories. So in, in terms of my story, Matt, um, at the same time that I was coming to understand and believe that Sola Scriptura was not something actually set forward and taught in the New Testament, I was also beginning to read the early church fathers, mainly at the instigation of St. John Henry Newman, who said, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. I was reading the Fathers because I wanted to hear what they had to say about this foundational, crucial, um, this key issue of authority. And as I read 
you know, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, all of these books, I found myself presented with a kind of conundrum, I'd have to say. I found myself presented with a sort of puzzle that needed to be resolved. And, and here's the puzzle. In the Fathers, it seemed to me, you have the written tradition of the apostles, that is scripture, and you have the unwritten tradition of the apostles, that is tradition, and they're both presented somehow as authoritative. We'll start with scripture. On the one hand, there's scripture. From the very beginning, there's no doubt on this. Scripture is held in the early church by the early church fathers to be the sole, and I want to emphasize that, the sole inspired and infallible written record of the teaching of the apostles. And I need to make something very clear here. You know, I'm getting into a bit of a nuance, but tradition, and this is in the early church, tradition, and that is understood as the teaching of the apostles, the body of apostolic doctrine, as the it was handed down. Yes. Yeah, the, yes, the deposit of faith as it was given to the churches and preserved in the churches by the Holy Spirit and passed down through the apostolic succession, tradition is not held to be inspired. Um, we have the Old and New Testaments alone that are believed to be God-breathed, the, the process of inspiration applying to them. And in the Fathers, we find statements that are so strong along this line, you know, the inspiration and authority of Scripture, that they could easily seem to be making the case for sola scriptura. Yeah, you've got one from Cyril of Jerusalem that I've seen cited as proof that, as a proof that the early church taught sola scriptura. Um, and I, this is around what uh, the third century, middle of the third century. That Cyril's yeah, it's writing. about two fifty A.D. It's from uh, his catechetical lectures, and yes, this is the primary passage that you will hear quoted in debates on this issue from the Protestant side. Let me read it, and we can puzzle on it a little bit. And I want my hearers, I want our hearers to, to, to hear how strong this passage is. And I want, and I mean both Catholic as well as Protestant. Listen to what St. Cyril says. For concerning the divine and holy mysteries of the faith, the doctrines we believe, not even a casual statement must be delivered without the holy scriptures, nor must we be drawn aside by mere plausibility and artifices of speech. Even to me who tell you these things, Give not absolute credence unless you receive the proof of these things which I announce from the divine scriptures. For this salvation which we believe depends not on ingenious reasoning, but on demonstration of the holy scriptures. Now, this again is the most common passage that is cited. And I, you know, I want you, let's just listen. I mean, listen to what he's saying. When it comes to the divine and holy mysteries of our faith, not even a casual statement, Cyril says, must be delivered without support from the Holy Scriptures. In fact, he says, whatever I tell you, do not give absolute credence. Don't even believe me unless I come to you and I show it being supported from the Scriptures. Now, when you read this, I mean, this sounds an awful lot like sola scriptura. It uh, sounds an awful lot like what St. Paul says that says, you know, stick to the gospel we preach to you, that even if one of us comes to you, or even if an angel from heaven comes and tells yeah. you something differently— don't believe it. We yeah. gave you the gospel. Yeah, here you are bringing out Galatians again, but but you're dead right. You're no dead right. It Galatians. sounds like Paul. What has bewitched no, them? Yeah. What has yeah, what has bewitched you? The, but you're absolutely right. This sounds like Paul, and this sounds like what he says in the Galatians. It sounds like this sounds like something that a Bible only Protestant 
would say and would love to say, okay, here's the problem though. If what St. Cyril says here was the only thing the fathers say about this issue of scripture and tradition, then I think we might have a slam dunk case for saying the early church was a church committed to sola scriptura. The only problem is this is not the only thing that the fathers had to say. And this is where the puzzle that I mentioned arises. Because along with statements like Cyril's that every Bible-only Christian would be very, very happy to read and to expound on and to agree with, we find, we find statements in the early fathers that no Bible Christian, no Protestant would be happy to um, agree with. And, and that's really the problem. Because if you only had statements like Cyril's, I, I think you could conclude, look, he's just saying it's the Bible alone. That's all there is to it. And, but the problem is, see, a Catholic, I have found, can absorb Cyril's statement. The problem oh, I is see, the I see absolutely is, nothing wrong with Cyril's statement, <laughs> you know, as someone who doesn't believe sola scriptura. Yeah, so. the, the problem is that the reverse is not true. That is, it's very difficult for a Bible-only Christian to absorb these other kinds of statements th- that we're going to look at now. And I'm going to give you one. For, for instance, you would never have heard me in a trillion years from the pulpit of my Baptist church, you would never have heard me say anything like what Origen says in the preface of his Fundamental Doctrines written in around 225 AD. This is what he says. The teaching of the church has indeed been handed down through an order of succession from the apostles and remains in the churches even to the present time. That alone is to be believed, which is in no way at variance with ecclesiastical and apostolic tradition. That sounds like the reverse of what Calvin says when he says, don't believe the apostolic and ecclesial tradition unless it lines up with the scriptures, yeah, right? Yeah, it's like it, the, the inverse of Calvin's, Calvin's statement. That's, yeah, that's, that's sharp. It's true. I mean, we've quoted Calvin like 20 times, but I didn't catch that. I've quoted yeah, Calvin it, more in this series than I quote him in probably my entire life up to this point. Yeah, and it is like the inverse because he says, only believe what the fathers say, only believe the church's tradition. I, I will only see it as being, uh, as being authoritative if I have decided that it's in accord with the word. And now here, Origen is saying, only believe that which is in accord with ecclesiastical and apostolic tradition. Origen, maybe one of the greatest Bible scholars of his generation. Yeah, but he was kind of an out there weirdo in some ways. And so I do want to insert this. If if Origen had been out there on his own speaking in this way, that would be another matter because Origen was known to be out there on a few things, which we could go off into, but it might not be important. Um, But the truth is, and this is the troubling truth that I had to face as a Baptist, is that we can find statements scattered throughout the early church fathers that sound like Origen's statement. And to convey the mindset of the early church, really, on this issue of tradition, I think we need to read a couple more passages. Uh, Here's one from the great Saint Irenaeus, bishop and martyr, and he's writing around 180 AD. Listen to what he says. Take it in. When, therefore... And, and ask yourself as you're hearing this, Matt, is this how, ask yourself, how would this have sounded in my ears back when I was a uh, Protestant? When therefore we have such proofs, it is not necessary to seek among the others that which is easily obtained from the church. For the apostles, like a rich man in a bank, deposited with her, that is the church, most copiously everything which pertains to the truth. And everyone whoever wishes draws from her, that is the church, the drink of life. What then? 
If there should be a dispute over some kind of question, ought we not have recourse to the most ancient churches in which the apostles were familiar and draw from them what is clear and certain in regard to that question? What if the apostles had not in fact left writings to us? Would it not be necessary to follow the order of tradition, which was handed down to those to whom they entrusted the churches? Now, you have to understand for this that we uh, went back to St. Irenaeus and said, can you just in a single paragraph sum up an article that would prove Ken's point as strongly as possible? <laughs> because it's essentially what it does, right? Um, in, in this, he's he's essentially saying what you and I have been saying been trying to make an argument for it. he just spells it out and says it directly in against heresies yeah and here's this paragraph just sort of sitting here that that would be like an anvil in a protestant's throat it'd be like trying to swallow an anvil it, it just doesn't go it doesn't go down um but i can hear you know i want to be careful here i can hear a protestant apologist responding and saying but listen carefully to irenaeus sure if the apostles had not left his writings then it would be necessary to follow the order of tradition and look to the teaching of the churches and so forth. But, Ken, but, Matt, let us remember— But that's not, he, that's not his goal in pointing that out. I know. That, well, that, that's the answer to this. This is what they would say, though. You know, the apostles did leave us writings, and therefore there's no need to. And, of course, yeah, the answer is, you just said it. This isn't the point that Iris is making—I mean, that Irenaeus is making. The point he's wanting to make— goes like this at the end of that passage. What he's wanting to say is, hey, look, even if the apostles had not left us writings, we would be able to know the truth because it's been deposited in the church like a rich man deposits his money in the bank, and you can go there to get it. So, by the way, if you want to know more about Irenaeus and against heresies, I very much encourage you to check out the Deep in History podcast that's going on with the Coming Home Network. Marcus Grodi and Monsignor Steenson Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson uh, are doing a big, long series on just this work against heresies. And I don't know about you, Ken. I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, definitely check that out at deepinhistory.com uh, or on this YouTube channel as well. I'm just happy that they didn't go into Valentinus's teaching in extreme detail and start working out the thousands of eons between the Oh, Old yeah, Testament. and the, the great yeah. pumpkin or the great melon analogy that Irenaeus uses. We'll, we'll but, maybe they'll do a whole thing on fruit salad and, and the works of Irenaeus. It's but look, before we leave Irenaeus, before we move to the next quotation, though, you know, again, I want, I want to push something because what Irenaeus says is that, the, is that the, the apostolic doctrine is deposited in the church and that any Christian who wants to know what it is can go there to get it. And, and because of that, he says, because the church is in possession of the truth, he says, when a dispute arises... He doesn't, well, he doesn't say when a dispute arises, you know, bring out your Bibles and start, you know, throwing them back and forth, you know, chapter and verse, fight it out and decide what the truth is. He doesn't say that. Instead, Irenaeus says this, and again, I'm reading it. If there should be a dispute over some kind of question, ought we not to have recourse to the most ancient churches in which the apostles were familiar and draw from them what is clear and certain in regard to that question? Very different mindset. Extremely different mindset. So let's go on to Tertullian, one of the great uh, smart aleck theologians of the early church. <laughs> he was a smart aleck, and he's writing around 200 AD. I mean, he was sort of trained as a lawyer, and the, the guy is fun, he's fun to read because, you know, he just throws out these weird things, you know, he's very powerful. But writing around 200 AD, this is how Tertullian puts the same issue. Moreover, if there be any heresies, 
bold enough to plant themselves in the midst of the apostolic age so that they might seem to have been handed down by the apostles because they were from the time of the apostles, we can say to them, let them show the origin of their churches. Let them unroll the order of their bishops, running down in succession from the beginning, so that their first bishop shall have for author and predecessor some one of the apostles or of the apostolic men who continued steadfast with the apostles. Then let all the heresies offer their proof of how they deem themselves to be apostolic. I mean, that's kind of the who started your church question, you know? Yeah, and it's it, it, it's pretty clear. He's right in there, the point I want to make, he's right in there with Origen, he's right in there with Irenaeus, this is where the fathers are at. This is their mindset. And let me sum it up then quickly, what we've seen so far. We find in the fathers passages insisting in the strongest of terms that the Bible is inspired and is infallible and that nothing should be received apart from the Holy Scriptures. Nothing should be believed that cannot be supported from the Holy Scriptures. And then right alongside these passages, we find other passages insisting in the strongest of terms, and here's the subtle difference, that the true teaching is the standard of tradition. Uh, that is the standard of true teaching. That is, what is the doctrine that is contained in the Bible? What, what do we believe based on it? The standard of true teaching is the standard of tradition. The teaching of the apostles, as it was preserved, not in their writings, but in the churches, handed down through the apostolic succession, protected, guarded, by the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to ask you a question, Matt. Uh-oh. And no fair thinking about how you would view this as a Catholic now. You need to go back into your life as a Methodist. And I'm going to ask you a question. How would you have reconciled these two sorts of passages if you were reading the Fathers back then? Would you have even tried? I would not have even tried, um, depending on how far I was along this path of questioning. Uh, but to start... Uh, if you were to say, well, Cyril says this, and Tertullian says this, and Irenaeus says this, I would have probably said something like, well, who cares? What does the word say? <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, that's probably how I would <laughs> yeah, have yeah. Uh, initially attacked it. But as I was kind of trying, in my own particular background, my goal was, you know, I was looking around at this consumerist evangelical world around me and thinking, this can't be what God intended. Let's go back mm. to the roots. But and when you mm -hmm. find these things, what I what I would have been thinking is, this is something bigger and crazier than I expected to find. They're thinking about things that are not on my radar here, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure exactly where to put all these things. I don't I don't know what they mean by apostolic tradition. I don't know what they mean by. A succession of bishops, as Tertullian is talking about. I, these would not have been. Yeah, you wouldn't have. At things the time, I would have. This is what... I wouldn't have had a place for them in my brain. I would have just thought, well, yeah. but what's the what's the pearl of moral wisdom that I'm supposed to be getting from this? You know, it's funny when you when you say that you would have, you might have answered, you know, who cares, you know, Bible only, you know, chapter and verse. It's it's funny because something like that precisely happened when I was on the road toward the Catholic Church. And my wife and I. Oh, have been this talking... is the Polycarp story, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> my wife and I have been ta have been talking about the doctrine of baptism and the fact that in the early church fathers, every time they mention baptism, it's you know baptism regenerates, baptism you give the gift of the Holy Spirit, sins are wa washed away. And my wife had been reading all these quotations, and we're sitting in church one Sunday night, and this discussion came up about baptism, 
And this is a Baptist church, you know, so you ba- you only baptize those that have come to personal faith in Christ, and it's just a symbol. It doesn't do anything. And um, my wife sticks her head out, or sticks her neck out, and she says, well, a Polycarp said, and she starts rattling off some passage from Polycarp on baptism, and one of the men in the church responded exactly like you did. You responded by saying, oh, Polycarp can go fish. You know, basically, who cares? And I remember at the time looking at my wife, and, and she had this look on her face like, wait, hold on. She Polycarp was the one who looked was, like a fish in that moment, right? Yeah, like, Polycarp's a disciple of John, and you just said, and you just said, who cares? reliable martyrdom that we have. Yeah, yeah, and, and you've just said, who cares? Who cares? So this is the strong sola scriptura kind of view. And so I suppose my response to, to this conundrum would have been something like this. I would have said, well, the Cyprian passage that emphasizes the inspiration authority of Scripture, that one's true, and he's right. And the Irenaeus and Origen and Tertullian passages that are emphasizing tradition are wrong. I would have also been confused at this point, too, because I was, as I was on this path of discovery, I was like, well, it's St. Cyril, it's St. Uh-huh. Irenaeus, but it's just Mr. Origen and Mr. Tertullian. You know, <laughs> Mr. They're, they're yeah, not... Yeah. I mean, they're, they're sort of roundly condemned for some of the other dumb things that they did. So again, right. these, are, these are a lot of things that are swirling in my head at the time. Yeah, but, but that's why I said a moment ago about, about Origen, if this was an idiosyncratic view that they were popping off with, then you could blow it off. But when you find that this is a pervasive mindset established within the early church... Um, it, it's harder to do that. But the bottom line is, I'm with you. I don't think I would have felt the need to even try to reconcile these two. I would have said, well, they contradict each other, and, and who, who cares, because it's Bible only. Just like the churches today, there are all kinds of different opinions out there. Yeah, and the problem is, though, at this point, because I was being affected by what I was learning, at this point, it was different for me, Matt. Um, you know, now I wanted to try to understand and comprehend the mindset of the early church. You know, I wanted, at this point, to... Um, understand how they saw this puzzle of scripture and tradition and how the two would fit together. And the thing is, once I tried to understand, it really wasn't that difficult. It wasn't that hard. And I think that maybe the best, we're going to get to a great passage here. I think maybe the best way to explain what I've just said, to explain this, is to read another passage from, from your one buddy. of the church fathers. From yeah, one of that, your favorites. That really helped to make sense of this. And we're talking about St. Vincent of Lorraine. We're talking about 434 A.D., which sounds really after, late, but but it's, it's only about, after the canon of Scripture has been established, but not very yeah, long after. Yeah, th- two, three, four decades. Yeah, after in his book called the Commonatorium, and when I read this passage, I was kind of rolling on the floor. I have to admit, and you'll see why in a moment. But Saint Vincent's purpose in writing this book, the Commonatorium, was specifically to offer guidance on how to distinguish good Orthodox Catholic teaching from the teaching of heretics. And this this is what he says. If one should ask one of the heretics, what ground have you for saying that I ought to cast away the universal and ancient faith of the Catholic Church? He, that is the heretic, has the answer ready. For it is written, and forthwith he produces a thousand examples, a thousand authorities from the law, from the Psalms, from the apostles, from the prophets, by means of which interpreted on a new and wrong principle, the unhappy soul may be precipitated from the height of Catholic truth to the lowest abyss of heresy. Do heretics appeal to Scripture? They do indeed, and with a vengeance. For you may see them scamper through every single book of Holy Scripture, whether among their own people or among strangers, 
in private or in public, in speaking or in writing, at convivial meetings or in the streets, hardly ever do they bring forward. I thought I was reading Dr. Seuss at this point, you know, in a car or, you know, eating tar, you know, in a tree with a bee. What, not what in a house, not with a mouse, not in a <laughs> boat, not with a goat, not with a donatist, not with a montanist. Yeah, exactly right. He says, whether among their own people or among strangers in private or in public, in speaking or in writing, at convivial meetings or in the streets, hardly ever do they bring forth anything of their own which they do not endeavor to shelter under the words of Scripture. You will see an infinite heap of instances from the Bible, hardly a single page of their writings, which does not bristle with plausible quotations from the New Testament and the Old. In other words, and this, this really hit me, the problem as St. Vincent sees it is that while the early church may not have been practicing sola scriptura, the heretics were practicing sola scriptura with a vengeance. They were masters of sola scriptura. They were masters of it. You know, he says here about, you can't read a page of their works that does not bristle with plausible quotations from the scripture. So anyway, the question became, how does one know who is properly interpreting and understanding the teaching of scripture? This is what he's asking because he's saying, you know, the heretics come at you and they've got a million passages in their arsenal from the Old Testament, from the New, the Psalms, that they can hit you with that plausibly support their point of view. And so the question he's asking implicitly is, how do, we, how do we know who is properly interpreting and understanding the Scripture? And it's one thing, in other words, to declare that the Old and New Testaments are inspired and authoritative. And I think that's what you had in mind when you said you didn't have any problem with Cyprian's statement. Because it's one thing to declare the Old New Testaments are inspired, they are authoritative, nothing should be believed that is not supported by them. But it's quite another thing to determine exactly what these books are teaching about God, about Christ, about salvation, about the Holy Spirit, about the church, about the sacraments. You know what I'm saying? The doctrinal content, it's, you can say the Bible's inspired and authoritative, you can believe it. It's another matter to answer the question, okay, well, tell me what it teaches then on this and this. But and looking this at the hundreds and thousands of, of denominations that are out there in the Protestant world, I think that that would be um, kind of a clear a distinction to make. Go ahead. I'm sorry. But think about the books that have that have, you know, pervaded the culture and and lasted and become classics of Western literature or 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 any mm-hmm. major literary tradition. Everybody says you have to read this book. Why? Because it's it talks about this. Like there's a there's a general understanding mm-hmm. about what that book is about. Uh, so these books that have been preserved from generation to generation without having yet been put in a book until the third or fourth century. You know, the people who think they're important and are saving them are also saving what they mean, uh, just by extension. Yeah. That's just that's just what you yeah. would do. You wouldn't be like, well, we kept this thing. John wrote it. Nobody's really sure what it's about, but I'm sure that uh, you know, 1,500 years from now, someone will decide what it's. And about. you know, this is reaching back, Matt, and it's fitting with what we saw when we were doing all of our episodes on sola scriptura in the Bible in the New Testament. Because while the New Testament writings, all of those letters and so forth, while, while they accurately and truly reflect the teaching of the apostles, we noted at the time, they hardly ever summarize their doctrine. No. They hardly ever stop and say, well, this is, you know, basically, this is what I believe about A and B and C and D. Only there doc we have like that is the Didache, right? <laughs> yeah, <which laughs> and that, not, doesn't, that leaves a lot out, right? Which is not canonical. Um, no. 
You know, but mostly they were occasional documents. They're letters written to specific churches dealing with specific problems. They don't summarize. So what you just said is true, along with the writings which are treasured and preserved because they're inspired and they're apostolic. The understanding of what the teaching of the apostles was, was also handed down and preserved. So, you know, like I mentioned a moment ago, I had to laugh reading Vincent's images here because, you know, I almost thought I was reading Dr. Seuss for a moment, you know, with his, with his, in a, you know, here and there, convivial meetings, whatever, going on and on and on. But I also couldn't help think of the prophecy experts that we see on TV all the time, the prophecy preachers. These guys, you know, they can rattle off from memory hundreds and thousands of passages from Ezekiel, from Daniel, from Jeremiah, from the law, the prophets, the writings, from the New Testament, and they rattle them off to support and even to present as proof, as demonstration, the most crazy eschatological scenarios from the Bible. And that's kind of what Vincent is talking about. So while I was laughing reading Vincent, and while I was thinking about these prophecy experts, I couldn't deny that what he was getting at was basically true. Many years of preaching, for me, many years of preaching Scripture and teaching Scripture on a weekly basis had convinced me, I knew it was true, that it is indeed possible to support almost any doctrine from plausible, by plausible quotations from the Bible. And Ken, just for a very sobering example of that, think about the chaos that's been in our country for the past couple of weeks um, you have Christians on both sides either using Christianity and the scriptures to justify one position or another on how the racial question yeah. should be act, should be handled. You've got slaveholders in the slave era using the scriptures to justify their slaveholding. I mean, you've got... Um, yeah. You have so many... This isn't just a matter of a bunch of eggheads in a seminary debating over the Greek you know, the exegesis of some Greek term. Um, this has long and and profound and sometimes mm -hmm. very tragic implications, the differences that people can come to when they're outside the deposit of faith. Oh, yeah. I'm, you know, you've got people using plausible quotations to support any doctrine that has ever been held. I mean, when you think about it, how else would we have all the denominations that exist? I mean, it's not like, it's not like everybody in the Lutheran denomination is smart and everybody in the baptist domination is stupid you well know, the lutherans the, <laughs> might might take issue with that i mean it's it's not like you can divide the de denomination donations up by saying well these are the stupid ones and you know and these are the insane ones uh, you know you've got bright intelligent scholarly and prayerful godly, yeah prayerful people in every one of these denominations and so the only way you can explain all these doctrinal uh, systems it would be to admit that it's possible to provide plausible interpretations of Scripture to support them. Okay, but the Protestant will respond at this point, I mean, at least the very, very serious Bible, only one will say, but isn't the Bible enough? I mean, isn't everything God wants us to know there material sufficiency? And isn't it set forth clearly enough, formal sufficiency, that, that, that the godly person of average intelligence who prays asks for the leading of the Holy Spirit, does his work in the Greek and Hebrew, you know, and is a serious interpreter, can know the truth? I mean, isn't that true? And then this is when they usually bring back up 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, you know? Yeah. that it's, you All know. scriptures God breathed is that the, the, the man mm -hmm. of God can be complete. Right. Yeah, I mean, isn't it clear enough? It's all there. Isn't it clear enough? Well, St. Vincent anticipates this question, and he gives an interesting reply, and so we need to read a tiny bit more from him. But here someone perhaps will ask, 
since the canon of Scripture is complete and sufficient of itself for everything, and more than sufficient, what need is there to join with it the authority of the church's interpretation? For this reason, because owing to the depth of the Holy Scripture, all do not accept it in one and the same sense, but one understands its words in one way, another in another, so that it seems to be capable of as many interpretations as there are interpreters. For Novation expounds it one way, Sibelius another, Donatus another, Arius another, Eunomius another, Macedonius another, Potinus, Apollo. You know, he goes on and on and on listing uh, tons of heresies at the time and groups that are known now to be heresies and have been discarded and are not, are, and are not supported. And he says, therefore, it is very necessary on account of so great intricacies of such various errors that the rule for the right understanding of the prophets and apostles should be framed in accordance with the standard of ecclesiastical and Catholic interpretation. And he, and he just, just harmonized like, all those quotes that you and I were saying, well, how do you make this fit, that, and that fit, and that fit? He just harmonized them all in that single paragraph. Right. He just strummed the chord that <laughs> brings them all together. And let me put it in simple terms so it's very clear. What I was coming to realize and what I believe now Catholicism makes a distinction between the authority of Scripture, the objective authority and inspiration of the Bible on the one hand, and on the other hand, the question of how you and I can know for sure what the Bible is teaching us. Catholicism says that while the Scriptures are indeed inspired, they are indeed authoritative for the correct understanding of what they are teaching us, the doctrinal content, one needs to look to the Church to whom the apostles committed their doctrine like a rich man deposits in at a bank, and it's been passed down, and it's been held. In other words, tradition provides the interpretive key to Scripture, or to, to, use, a, to use another image. Scripture, I mean, tradition then becomes the lens, as it were, through which the light of sacred Scripture is brought into focus and properly seen properly understood. And this is something that has been brought up um, in a few of the stories that we have on, on our site at chnetwork.org. Um, and one of them, uh, I think it's Charles Johnston's story. Uh, it's called the U.S. Supreme Court. Let me home. I think there's another one. George Washington made me Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, George Washington was not a Catholic, FYI. Uh, but this this principle is invoked. Can Here's, here's the thing that I was kind of coming to understand as I was discovering things like St. Vincent and, you know, the harmony of those quotes that you just mentioned. I wouldn't have known how to harmonize at first. Um, what if I said that the interpretation of the Constitution should be left up to the individual citizen under the guidance of the American spirit? You'd have said garbage, right? <laughs> It'd be chaos, right? There's... That's kind of like what it looks like now. Right. I mean, it does look like that in certain certain areas, but yeah. no. Um, we, But we see... We, yeah. we, we treat scripture that way if we're coming from a source. No, I catch your mindset. point. Even on yeah. a, I, I definitely catch your point. Even on a human level, right? You know, not dealing with the things of God and dealing with His Church in a country that's only a couple hundred or so years old. Yeah, we understand that if you said, "Here's the Constitution, here's the Bill of Rights," all of you, you guys can the figure spirit it out. of America will lead. Yeah, we would have a. It would be anarchy. Well, it, it's the same thing here. I could see that this is how the fathers put this puzzle back together. This is how they reconciled the pieces of scripture. And authority. And so let me just conclude by saying that it was becoming clear to me at this point in my study, Matt, that I was entering into a thought world, 
Now, I was entering into a space that was very, very different than what I knew as a Protestant and what I had been experienced with. And I knew that had I preached a trillion sermons um, from my pulpit on a trillion Sundays, I would never, ever have thought to speak in the ways that these early church fathers just very casually and uh, matter-of-factly spoke. I would never have thought to describe the truth as something that the apostles deposited in the church like a man deposits his money in the bank and you can go there to get it out. I would never have thought to say that if there's a dispute, oh, make sure you go to the most ancient churches that were founded by the apostles and follow the order of tradition. I would never have said, hey, if you want to know the truth, you can go to the church and take it out just like a man takes his money out of the bank. And I would never, ever, ever in a million years have said in a matter of a dispute, have recourse to the most ancient churches. That's your best bet. The no. fathers may have been all wrong. This is what I would have thought at the time. And, you know, the, the fathers may have been all wrong. Maybe the entire church just went apostate on day one, and maybe Luther and Calvin were entirely right. But this much, this much at least, I knew for sure. It was clear to me that the Christianity I knew was not the Christianity of these early fathers. I read a passage from Athanasius, the great Saint Athanasius, who was responsible for the for the Nicene Creed, basically the important. And helped give us it. one of the most reliable early lists of what should be yeah. included in the New Testament. I read where Athanasius said this. He spoke of the teaching, quote, I'm quoting now, the teaching and faith of the Catholic Church, which the Lord bestowed, and the apostles proclaimed, and the fathers safeguarded. And it was really hard for me to face the reality that if I could have somehow transported back into the fourth century or, you know, parachuted back and dropped in next to Athanasius, that he and I, while I was still a Baptist, he and I would not be members of the same church. You know, to, to face that reality, he writes the Nicene Creed, and yet he and I would not have been able to sit in the pew together. Yeah, it's wild. And to just bring up a point that you made about entering into a thought world— that's the sense that I had uh, once I started to put these things together, um, was not that when I would read the Fathers, I would find a point that I had not thought of before, mm-hmm. but rather I would be, I had found a way of looking at the world and the way of looking at Christianity that was completely alien to me. It, yeah, it was, it was just, like the Martians have shown up. Right. And it, maybe I was the Martian. Yeah. That's the, but, but this, this whole notion that this is, they are guardians of defenders of something very much larger than themselves, and it's not just some worldview. It's this actual thing, right, um, that they're talking about. It's not just like a, a set of ideas or a list of moral principles or, you know, a, a belief about the Trinity. It's like this actual thing. And that the actual thing is the church, yeah. and yeah. that's just something that was—it was, it, it was just so foreign to my particular experience of Christianity that— I, I'm, I'm more than anything else felt a little bit confused and like I was looking at something really big and I didn't know where to start on it. So Well, you, you know, at this point too, it was, it was becoming personal because I found myself thinking, man, if I go back to the fourth century, I want to sit in the pew with Athanasius. I don't want to be in another church. I don't want to be I, on that I don't list of be, people that Vincent of Lorenz was saying were all heretics, right? I don't want to be the pastor of another church. I don't want to be saying implicitly to Athanasius, you know, you guys are really smart, but you're not quite as smart as I am. And I, I, I invite you, you know, sheep stealing, you know, trying to get Athanasius to come over to my church. No. Ken Hensley, the guy that tried to sheep steal St. Athanasius of Alexandria. What? What in the world? Well, we are out of time, uh, Ken, but 
we got more. We have so much more uh, to talk about in terms of not just our own journeys, but Sola Scriptura and a lot more. If you uh, had any thoughts that occurred to you while we were having this conversation, please let us know in the comments. Please hit us with a note. Come to chnetwork.org and visit us at the Coming Home Network. I'm Matt Swain for my colleague Ken Hensley. Thank you for being with us. We'll talk to you next time around. Thank you, Matt. Thank you.